With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. This is Jeff T. from the Club 520 Podcast. When it comes to your feet, eBay's got your back. When you see the blue check mark that says authenticity guaranteed, that means real experts are checking your sneakers. Every stitch, down to the sole. They even smell them because nothing says fresh like the scent of real kicks. So kick back and relax. From the drop to your doorstep, eBay doesn't play games with your sneaker game. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guaranteed. Visit ebay.com for terms. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Volume. Darwin. The nerds is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are joined by friend of the show, of course, the great Jason Timpf, host of Hoops Tonight. Haven't had you on in a minute, but it's very good to have you here, Jason. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, guys. It's great to see you both. It has been a long time since we've talked, which is actually kind of crazy because of everything that we have... Uh, uh, had going on in the NBA, so much interesting yeah. stuff to talk about. But honestly, we've all just been busy. Hasn't been anything personal. I'm excited though. We're gonna we're gonna do this more often. I promise. That's gonna be the longest break we'll take. Yeah. Well, we were trying to get you in before Thanksgiving. At least in my head, we were. But then things came up on us pretty fast. So I agree. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff to talk about. And let's start, Jason, with the Lakers because there was once a time before hoops tonight. When your show was Lakers tonight, some of us remember it. And of course you have an expertise on the Lakers. <laughs> so seeing what you have from them so far this year, where it's been sort of an up and down experience, slow start, then they started rattling some off and then they have this horrible loss to the Sixers. Just what's been your biggest takeaway on LA so far? Okay. Uh, you, you trivia guys will, will know the answer to this. Who's the, who's that dude who coached the Cardinals who had that they are who they thought they, oh, Dennis Green. we thought they were, who was it? Who was it? <laughs> It was Dennis Green. Yeah, Dennis Green. That's right. Yes. They are who we thought they were. Like, I feel I've had so many of my listeners in the comments like, admit it, the Lakers are terrible, all this kind of stuff, or they're average, or they're just not that good of a team, or whatever. And I'm like, what exactly have we seen from the Lakers this year that we didn't already know? It's like, oh, their backcourt's unathletic, and D'Lo alongside Austin is probably not a great option for a championship team. Okay, we already knew that from the Nuggets series. Like, uh, without Jared Vanderbilt on the floor, they're going to struggle with point of attack defense. Okay, we already knew that. They probably need to make a midseason trade. Okay, we already knew that. Like all of the stuff we learned about this team that's specifically leading to their struggles is stuff we already knew. Like they struggle with night in, night out effort. Okay, they have every single day yeah. <laughs> since they hoisted the trophy in 2020. None of this stuff is new information. And the, the, the if anything, I'm actually a tiny bit more optimistic about this team than I was to start the season because all of those things were things I already knew. And really everything this year came down to two things. Would LeBron James get back closer to what he was in 2020? 
And would they hit on their midseason trade? And I've had some changes in what I think they should target with that trade. Like a lot of Laker fans are kind of thinking about Alex Caruso, and that's a specific guy that uh, a lot of people have been looking at. I actually lean more towards a bigger player. The specific guy that I have my eye on is someone like a Jeremy Grant or someone like a Dorian Finney-Smith, a guy who's more in that 6'8", 6'9", territory that can actually play on both ends of the floor. But really, the the, the moral of the story is they've always needed, between LeBron and, uh, LeBron and AD in Austin – two top-tier athletes with high motors that are plus offensive players. And they are always going to have, have to have made a trade to get to that point. I think LeBron does look a lot closer to what he was in 2020. I know the scoring volume isn't there, but the efficiency, the uh, a LeBron James jump shot is worth almost 1.1 points this year, which is a full 20% up for where it was last year, which is a big deal. Anthony Davis in the post has been a more impactful offensive player. And, and you know, it's one of those things where I think I think it's it, uh, this team is not going to be the type of dominant regular season juggernaut that people are expecting because they don't have those high motor athletes yet. But, you know, that's something that they can address. I think I think Rui Hachimura, D'Angelo Russell, and a first-round pick is a pretty solid trade package. I think, I think that's a trade package that will pull back a quality player. It's just a question of who. And I think as long as they hit on that trade and they stay, stay healthy and LeBron maintains this level of play, I think they're every bit the top-tier contender that they were last year. I completely agree with what you laid out, Jason. We shouldn't anticipate a dramatic turnaround from the Lakers without any changes. Uh, I want to give a big shout out to you. You did a uh, clip on social uh, the other day. You were talking about the lapses of effort. They dig themselves these big holes every game, and I can't think of a couple of games that encapsulate that more than the Mavericks game where they fight all the way back. It looks like they're going to come back, and the Sixers spank them. You know, there's general lapses in effort. Uh, I still believe in LeBron, like I mentioned with that Mavs game that was so weird, those final two possessions, man. I thought LeBron was just going to get downhill to the rack uh, on both of the last two possessions. He chucks a 25-foot jumper and then, you know, throws that pass to AD on the lob. I still believe in AD anchoring the defense, but AD's not going to magically become a takeover number one offensive scorer. So, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think they have to do something at the deadline to improve. And I like that trade package. You throw out a couple of wings, a couple of bigger guys, uh, and you throw out Caruso, too. Are there any other guys, like, because you mentioned the lack of athleticism in the backcourt, uh, the struggles that those guys have. Are there any other guard targets that you like for the Lakers at the deadline? Because I think that really is what their season hinges on, what other big money moves they can make at the deadline. Yeah, it's interesting. The problem I have specifically with zeroing in on a guard, and obviously it, it, Alex Crusoe is the type of archetype that we're, that we're talking about here, but like it's you're, you're you're basically referring to any sort of like big, uh, uh, like, and I say big more in terms of like low center of gravity, like fire hydrant type of guard that can defend at the point of attack. I mean, maybe you could talk into somebody like Orlando and be like, hey, we'll give you D'Angelo Russell because you need a shot creator and we'll take Jalen Suggs or something like that, uh, something along those lines. But that'd be those a are, win. That'd be a huge win, right? Exactly. Yeah. But like that, these are all, th those are like long shot deals. And that's kind of what I'm talking about because when I look at that specific guard archetype, there's just not that many of them. Like Bruce Brown, Indiana's not getting rid of him. Terrence Mann, the Clippers are not getting rid of him, right? Like, the, there's just not that many of them around the league. That said, there are some undervalued and underappreciated bigger wings. And specifically, this is why I lean more in that direction. If you think of it as Austin and then LeBron and AD, then you got to do something with two spots. Let's say you get Alex Caruso. Or, hell, let's say the miracle happens and you get Jalen Suggs. Now you got Jalen Suggs out there. 
Torian Prince at the three has been a little bit of an issue. He's a little too small, not a very good rebounder, and he's not quite quick enough to take, you know, primary point of attack assignments, right? So, like, now Jared Vanderbilt in that situation, Jared Vanderbilt does all those things super well, but he really, really struggles on the offensive end of the floor and can lead to significant issues in terms of guys, the team's just ignoring him, right? So, I actually like the idea of Torian Prince at the two, when he's alongside a three that can take the higher leverage point of attack assignment, control the glass, be a, a, a better athlete in rotation, and then Torian Prince is, is, is essentially a oversized two at, the, at that point. And uh, I, that's why I kind of lean more towards that bigger forward prospect. Is I, I just think it gives you a better option at the two. I, let's just put it this way. I prefer... Torian at the two over Jared at the three within the playoff context, because I think, I think at that level, I think Torian can actually do a good job, especially when he's very clearly the fifth best player in the lineup. And when he's very clearly going to be operating on uh, a lot of advantage situations. And then lastly, this is the last thing I'll say about it. The reason why I'm, I'm, I'm high on Jeremy Grant for a couple of reasons. The Lakers do need just a little bit more offensive pop in terms of like just dynamic like dynamic scoring capability, right? Jer- Jeremy Grant's having a really good season on that front. And then secondly, like I feel like he's reaching a point where he's done the the I'm scoring a bunch of points on a shitty team thing for for about a half decade now, and I think this might be a better time to try to get him to buy in, and I think he might be relatively inexpensive within that regard. So that's kind of the type of archetype that I lean towards. I like that because to me, it sort of feels like the Lakers have two competing needs right now. If you're talking about them reaching that contending ceiling that they hope to, because they are flawed right now and they are very much a work in progress. And Jason, you lay out all of these deficiencies that we could have seen coming. Some of them have been more exaggerated maybe than I would have anticipated. Like I think personally, I probably undersold how significant the loss of a Dennis Schroeder in that point of attack defense. Of course, it's made worse when you don't have Vando out there either, but I agree with you. I don't really want to play Vando big time playoff minutes because of his offensive limitations, but how valuable Schroeder was in that Warriors matchup against Steph playing 27 minutes a game. I mean, he really changes some of the dynamics when he's on the floor versus Reeves and D'Lo who can be more redundant, who have some of the same limitations. And that limits what the Lakers can be defensively. I thought, all right, well, Anthony Davis playing at this level, you can be an elite defense pretty much no matter what. And I just don't think that is the case when the point of attack defense is this much of an issue. But then at the same time, with the backcourt is currently configured or just with the overall offensive personnel they have, I think you're going to run into the same problems as last year, which is you're too reliant on the creation from a guy like D'Angelo Russell, who takes your offense out of rhythm, who takes a bunch of tough shots, who is very erratic because of the degree of difficulty of his shots. And just generally, they need more punch. They're 25th in offensive rating right now. And Although I do think LeBron looks better and he's having really the best three-point shooting season of his career right now. He's getting to the rim at the highest rate since 2020. I do think he looks rejuvenated and that's been encouraging because he was dealing with the foot injury in last year's playoff run, but that was the most inconsistent, the most passive LeBron that we have ever seen in a high stakes scenario. The most reliant on a jump shot that really wasn't falling at that point. So absolutely encouraging to see him better. And then AD to me, I don't believe is ever going to take a meaningful offensive leap at this point. I do think he's been a little better as a passer this year, just in terms of his ability to deal with doubles, find guys on the weak side, cutters, but he's still 
inconsistent there. The jump shooting evolution, not a real thing. Like elite jump shooting Anthony Davis might as well be Beowulf at this point, okay? Maybe he existed. <laughs> if he did, it was a long, long time ago, man. Like that is the stuff of legend. He's five of 36 for mid-range this year. Just comical. And his field goal attempts right now, lower than even last year's playoff run. So to me, that level of consistent assertive AD, I don't believe in. And he's certainly not going to reach the jump shooting level that he did in the bubble. And that championship formula of unstoppable LeBron, a top three player alive, Anthony Davis, because he was making 50% of his jumpers, because he was giving you 28 a night. He was a consistently dominant offensive force with the elite role players. I just don't know if the top two is that overwhelmingly great to where that can be a title formula anymore. And they really didn't even have elite role players on that team. They had good role players. They were an elite defense. So that's where I talk about the competing needs. They definitely need to address this backcourt configuration. They need somebody who can really, really defend at the point of attack. And that's why I do really like a guy like Caruso. And then at the same time, they need more offensive punch. And I, there's been talk about a Zach Levine who would bring you some of that high-level pick-and-roll shot making, but also could do it off-ball as a catch-and-shooter, an explosive cutter. Jeremy Grant is interesting because he does give you, to some degree, a solve for both. I honestly like that as a pitch. I don't know if it's enough to make me say, okay, this is a team that can win the title now, but I do think it's a step in the right direction because we can all agree that they absolutely need to make some mid-season move, but you can't be out on the Lakers because of a bad start to the regular season because of the effort issues and because we know that this roster doesn't look now how it's going to look at the end of the season. Exactly. Like, like to be clear, I'm with you. LeBron and AD are not dominant enough to represent the type of advantage that they represented in the 2020 season. That goes without saying. And the, the way I look at it, like, I think even within my championship contender tier, which right now is Denver at one, Boston at two, Milwaukee at three, the Lakers at four, the Suns at five, and then I have the Timberwolves at six, and I still have the Warriors at seven. In that tier, I think it's like Denver, Boston, Milwaukee – gap Lakers Suns, you know but I think the Lakers can jump that gap into the top tier if uh they hit they hit on this particular trade and again like one of the things with the offense I will say I'm not as worried about everybody else's and one of the main reasons why is like this team has a shit ton of really bad offensive process during the early portions of games. Like, they'll go these five-minute stretches where you're like, what the hell are they doing? D'Lo just challenged Joel Embiid at the rim. AD's trying to, like, dribble through three people, and he's dribbling it off his foot. And LeBron's, like, literally floating around doing nothing. Like, what is going on here? Like, Austin Reeves hasn't touched the ball yet. Like, whatever it is. It, like, even before he went to the bench, that was the thing. Is like, they would just run everything through D'Lo. And, like, he was really good in preseason, but then he's been pretty bad after that. And he's gotten a little bit better since then. But essentially, the way I look at it is, like, at the end of these games, they've gotten away from the bullshit. They've gotten away from the five out. And it's just spamming actions where they have significant advantages. A lot of LeBron, uh, a LeBron, LeBron Anthony Davis pick and roll. A lot of LeBron Austin Reeves ghost screens and, and two-man game between the two of them. Austin Reeves has been really good down the stretch of games, uh, knocking down big shots both on ball and off the ball. And like they've actually, when things really slow down and they have to execute, they've been really good. And, you know, I've, I've seen people mention the shooting. Let me ask you this. If you had a lineup in a playoff series with LeBron shooting the way he has been this season, 
with Austin Reeves getting back to where he was last season, although he hasn't shot the ball as well, but he has shot it well in crunch time. And a a Jeremy Grant at the three and a Torian Prince at the two. Do you think they're going to have spacing issues? I don't. Do you think they're going to have issues scoring? They haven't even before those deals at the end of games. And so like, I think most of their offensive issues at this point to the regular season have been poor shooting from guys who are historically good shooters. Like a huge part of why their shooting has been so terrible is Torian Prince and Austin Reeves can't make threes. And they're two really right. good three-point shooters. So, like, that, that's going to be fine. And a lot of that is related to offensive process in the sense that they're not generating as quality of looks because they're doing so much weird stuff in the early portions of games. But every time it's been, it's been a close game in the fourth quarter, it's been LeBron like, get the hell out of my way. We're going to run the same stuff that has been working for us for five years. We're going to get this thing done. So, like, I, I, I'm not – yeah, like I, I, I remain slightly more optimistic than I was coming into the season, but there's no question they have to hit on this trade. If they don't hit on the trade or they target the wrong type of player, like if they go after Levine and no one else, I, I'm not as excited about that. I don't view that team as particularly uh, dynamic, especially on the defensive end of the floor. And uh, and if LeBron can't maintain this level of play, you can write them off completely too. So they're they're what I would call a contender where everything has to go right. But if everything goes right, you'd be you'd be foolish to count them out, in my opinion. Yeah, th that's an interesting dynamic this season is it feels like, especially out West, there are so many teams where you can see the ceiling and yet night to night, you're very unsure of exactly what they are. But there are some things that are just naturally going to get better. Like you mentioned, the fact that they're 28th and three point percentage, some of the health stuff, Gabe Vincent barely playing Vando injury. Uh, Rui's been hurt recently. I do wonder if they don't move him, if he does figure more prominently into the rotation going forward, just because I think he has been so good since the postseason last year. And I think that the shooting leap that we've seen from him from beyond the arc is real. I think that he is a mismatch attacker, big physical forward guy who can defend. He's just a really valuable player. Other rotation stuff. I mean, I'm a big Christian Wood guy. He hasn't, he hasn't looked good offensively whatsoever. I do wonder if his utilization has just been a bit weird. Like he's basically just a spot up guy. Now I think he's one of the most effective pick and roll finishers in the league. Maybe get him a little bit more involved in those actions. But those are just little things that I think will trend in the right direction. I don't know if I'm quite as high on the Lakers ceiling as you. And even with the Grant addition, I do like it because it addresses both sides of the ball. I wonder if he's quite good enough at the point of attack, especially when you're looking at some of those matchups with the really dynamic guards. I still don't love that, but I mean, we do know what AD can do anchoring a defense as the best interior defender on the planet. And he's going to make you a damn good defense. So there's no question to me that this team has the potential to get a lot better. Really quick question before you go, Logan. If 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 Jeremy Grant's your three, can mm -hmm. you get away with Gabe Vincent at the two and give him some more of the high leverage point of attack assignments and then basically run Gabe Austin with Jeremy and uh, LeBron and AD? Yeah, I think that that's pretty solid. I don't know. I mean, you guys, I don't know, man. I'd rather have Prince <laughs> there. I don't, I'm not a big Gabe Vincent guy, man. Uh, Torian's just not quick enough, man. Yeah, no, he's not. He's not. Jeremy would have to take the harder assignments. Now, with, with Jeremy, the thing that's exciting with him is rear view contests. Like, with the ability to funnel with his length on the back end of those types of possessions, it could, it could be interesting. The other thing is I look at that more as a switching lineup. 
Um, if you're running Austin, Tory, and Jeremy, LeBron, AD, you can pretty much switch one through five. And like, even if you end up with uh, Austin Reeves in a size mismatch, that's a lot of length and athleticism behind him to rotate out of it. Yeah. And Logan, I mean, to your wincing at Gabe Vincent, it's not <laughs> going to be Schroeder. You're not going to have a menace. You're not going to have a guy who can hound Steph off ball with ball pressure. Like that guy doesn't exist unless they make a move for that guy. But is it good enough? I mean, maybe not for them to win the title, but for them to be a, a pretty damn good defense, I think so. Yeah, that's. I think I'm closer to where Jason is with the Lakers and preseason. You guys know I was all in on the bandwagon. I said the Lakers are going to win the title. I think that sure. is the most. I think that is the most encouraging yet frustrating thing about the Lakers is that when this team does have their back against the wall, like you mentioned, Jason, damn, they got a lot of fight in them, and that's what's so frustrating is if you could just get this from whistle to whistle they wouldn't be in these holes to dig themselves out of it. It's it's frustrating because you do see the ceiling at the end of games. It's just, can we expect that come playoff time? Let me ask you guys this. If they got rid of a guy like D'Lo, final thing here, does that force LeBron to, because I know playoffs, he's obviously going to have the ball in his hands more. Does that just naturally make the offense better by subtracting D'Lo? LeBron's going to have to take more possessions. Like I guess a part of that too is, do you trust AR and LeBron is your top two ball handlers. Like, is he going to have enough juice to get through the playoffs if those are your two top guys? I think so. If LeBron commits to asserting himself full throttle night in, night out, and can his body handle that? Not sure, but I think it can more than last year, probably, presuming that he's at full health and he's playing at this level. So, I do think there's absolutely an addition by subtraction element there. You can only climb so high with D'Lo in a high volume role whatsoever when he's going to shoot you out of games, when he's going to dictate your offense for these five-minute stretches, and you're just like, bro, LeBron and Anthony Davis are out there, and even Austin Reeves is clearly a better basketball player than you. And it's not like those are your only two ball handlers. Like Once you do have healthy Gabe Vincent, that's a really good pull-up jump shooter right there, and that's a guy who can facilitate a bit. So there's always going to be a responsibility on the guard rotation to create offensively just because LeBron can't do everything at this stage in his career. But I would feel better about them if they moved on from D'Lo, even though he does have that offensive skill and that shot making that you see in stretches. To me, there's just too much of a downside when you consider how he over inserts himself in situations when you consider the defensive issues in the backcourt and all that. I think Austin needs to get back to where he was in the playoffs last year I think that's because what sucks is like he's been pretty good <laughs> he's, he's been unbelievable in crunch time and then he's averaging what 14 something a game with on 58 percent true shooting which is certainly not bad and and his playmaking has been uh has been better in the last like five six games uh than really it's ever been so like there it, it that said he needs to get back close in terms of like the actual shot making to where he was last year in the postseason as far as like the LeBron piece goes, think about the LeBron we had last year in the playoffs on the bad foot and everything he was able to do matchup attacking. Now add to that a little over a point per jump shot. What kind of player is that? We're talking about a top five player in the league, if that's the case. He was that he was that good in every other phase of the game. He just was so atrociously bad with his over-the-top shot making. 
in addition to his shot selection, because he's taking a bunch of those too that was hurting, that it literally like submarined them every single close game, especially in that Denver Nuggets series, right? But like in terms of his matchup attacking and him the chess match stuff and what he was doing to pick teams apart in slow down half court environments, he was every bit as the as smart and impactful as we expect him over at least over the course of the Laker era. Now here's the thing: the one, the last thing I'll say about it in terms of disagreeing with Carson as as it pertains to the ceiling. I kind of par- par- parse all these teams off into different, like, you know, identities, right? The Bucks are going to be a team that has, and we're going to talk about them later, but some sort of significant defensive shortcoming in terms of point of attack personnel. But they're going to be really difficult to guard in slow down half court environments with the Dame Giannis combo, right? Then you look at Boston, and I kind of go the opposite. I look at them as like this team that will have really high offensive highs, but they're still extremely susceptible to the same shit that's been bothering them for years in terms of uh, of offensive stagnation, right? And uh, they're also a little small on the interior. They have a little bit of like a like like oh, Kristaps Porzingis went out, and suddenly they can't guard anybody on the Orlando Magic. You know what I mean? Like that that sort of thing, thing can happen. So like they have some flaws there. Denver obviously has improved defensively this year, which makes them even more scary than they were last year. But they, I would still argue, like they're like they're always one injury away from a core starter from being a significantly easier to guard team. Because the problem is, is all four of their role players around Jokic are like guys you simply cannot leave open, right? In in some way, shape, or form. And like we've even seen that, like Jamal Murray goes out suddenly, they can't beat any good teams on the road, right? Like I would argue, if Michael, I mean Porter that is Jr. Jamal Murray. No, for sure. But like if Michael Porter Jr. went down, I would argue they become a significantly easier to guard team in the in the half court. If Contavious Caldwell Pope goes down and that turns into Justin Holiday or Christian Brown, that's a t- that suddenly becomes a, a a position you can help and rotate out of, right? If Aaron Gordon gets downgraded to you know Zeke Naji or somebody like that, like that or Peyton Watson, that's another. Like, like, so every team has some sort of uh, of like vulnerability, even if we agree Denver's the best. I look at the Lakers as like, if they hit on this trade, I look at them as a team. Like if, if I, if I was marching out there, Gabe Vincent, you know, uh, Jeremy Grant, LeBron and Anthony Davis, I look at them as a team that can be the best half court defense in the NBA playoffs. And if that is the case, you know, uh, in terms of like, cause they were last year, they were last year with, with Dennis being the, the one big swing card that Carson's referring to. So if they can address that that specific piece at the point of attack, I look at them as a team that would be exactly what they were last year. If they were what they were last year defensively with a little bit better half-court offense in terms of just upgrades from LeBron, upgrades from you know maybe Austin's a little better than he was, and then maybe you have that upgraded piece in terms of that role player that you have playing off the ball, I think that could go a long way towards towards them being, again, from being a gap below Denver like they were last year to being – in the same tier and below them, meaning like Denver would be favored, but it's probably a six or seven game series. And, you know, maybe some things go a couple different ways and they have a chance to win. And that to me is the the big difference. Like last year, they were a really good team that was clearly not good enough to win the title. I think this year, pending the right trade, they become a, a great team that has a chance to win the title, even if they're not the favorite. That's basically the way I look at them. Yeah, I don't think they were too far apart on that. And honestly, preseason, that's kind of how I felt. They just have to nail this move. And that's why they I can't to. necessarily like preemptively slide them in to that spot because there are real questions here that need to be addressed. Totally and fair. Totally 
totally I don't know, man. When I do look at Denver, I don't really see a flaw there. Like, if we're talking about, all right, one of their core starters goes out, so they go from being an unstoppable offense to still a top-five offense, because we saw Jokic do that in the playoffs when his backcourt was Faku and Austin Rivers, and, you know, that core has just continued to progress. Christian Brown is a better player than last year. I think that that is a team that is almost infallible right now. So you've got to do the a team. lot. They are the best. There's no question that they're the best. But the hottest team in the West right now is the Phoenix Suns, who we have finally got to see, not at full strength, of course. I don't know if we'll ever see that. Bradley Beal continues to be out. But we've at least seen them with both KD and Book, and they've won seven straight now that both those guys are healthy. So, Logan, I know that you weren't super high on the Suns in terms of where they ranked among contenders in the preseason, and then you started to warm up to them do you think first of all are katie and book the best scoring duo ever and what have been your takeaways from actually seeing those two out on the floor for this nice little stretch now i'm not ready to call both of these guys the best ever i think i still prefer steph curry and kevin durant at the peak of their powers you know steph shooting you know the greatest shooter of all time the floor spacing that comes with that you know i put Shaq and kobe in a tier above the greatest uh best scoring playoff run from two stars Maybe LeBron and Kyrie, but I mean, that's a debate for me is like in that three spots. I'd have KD and Book there. I've really liked it, and I haven't really, you know, I think that one of the biggest concerns about the Suns coming into this season, everybody talked about was, one, rim pressure with these guys, and then two, who's going to take over, you know, primary ball handling responsibilities? Who's going to be this team's true point guard? I never had an issue with that. You know, we've seen D Book with the ball in his hands so much for so long that he's improved you know he's a legitimately great playmaker now like book is just a lot to deal with and when you have both of these guys who can score at all three levels uh so efficiently i mean in duos in the nba today i would say for sure and then in terms of looking in the past i'd say the best since kd and curry and before that yeah kobe and Shaq. i mean they're lethal man and i am starting to warm up to them i, I said last time we did a, a nba update with power rankings i put the suns above the lakers and you know, I'm still debating that. Like, that's still a real debate for me. I think there's a higher ceiling that the Lakers can reach defensively, but I really like the Suns' personnel around them. Uh, you know, the guys who are going to do the little things, but the Suns are just in a completely different tier of offensive reliability. And so for me, that's the difference maker when we're comparing these teams. Again, as you guys mentioned, we haven't seen Brad Beal. And when we do, what is that going to look like? You know, he's supposed to be the best rim pressure out of the three uh, that's not really as big a concern. I think it's more of a concern is how are they going to gel together? Is there enough ball to go around? But that to me is the difference maker. Like, I think I would still probably have Phoenix. Uh, Jason, you guys put Carson for you or the Lakers for as well in that spot. Right now, no, not until they make a move. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I think I would have Phoenix for right now just because Book and KD are going to get buckets. You know, the Lakers offense is still going to go through those lulls, and that's the distinct difference maker for me. They are one of the greatest scoring duos of all time. Uh, would you guys put them over, like, Wilt Chamberlain, Paul Arizon? <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> what a question, Logan. And no, there's no argument. There's no <laughs> argument you can put them over the great Paul Arizon. I was going to say Jermaine O'Neal and Ron Artest. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, that's a team that you do not want to play a game of twos against. I think that they're legitimately a top five scoring duo of all time. I couldn't put them at number one. To me, unless you are like a versatility enthusiast, 
a bag enthusiast, perhaps a post-scoring guard enthusiast. I don't know how you make an argument that Book right now is a better scorer than peak Steph Curry. And at the same time, this version of KD isn't Warriors KD. Not quite, right? He's every bit the pull-up shooter. He's not the same athlete. He's not the same rim pressure. And then to me, the complementary skill sets of Pete, Kobe, and Shaq, if you're looking at that like 0-1, range, just so ideal to have the most dominant rim force we've ever seen along with this great perimeter and mid-range shot maker and peak athletic Kobe. That's just the one concern. If we are nitpicking them among the greatest scoring duos ever, Katie and Book do a lot of the same things really, really well. And you don't have to flag that lack of rim pressure as like a major concern, but it is still a concern. It can't be ignored when we saw how that drove some of their offensive lulls in the playoffs last year as good as they may have been overall and how a really big physical wing like Aaron Gordon who can make KD uncomfortable and really uh, challenge his jumpers more than other guys can throw him off of his rhythm a bit so they're top five I wouldn't have them number one but I mean it's an unbelievable scoring duo and definitely the best in the league today Mm -hmm. yeah let's finish the scoring duo thing first before we go to the Suns because I have thoughts but uh I, I, I'm going to go with Steph and KD better version of KD. And then Steph's just a better player than, than Devin Booker. In my opinion, it's always tricky to, to separate scoring, um, aesthetics from production. Cause I also put Kobe Shaq above them. And again, like it's not going to look as pretty with Shaq just barreling his way to the rim all the time. But in terms of just scoring impact, it's higher. You know what I mean? Like, I think you could make a case that LeBron James and Kyrie Irving circa 2017 was probably a, a, a better scoring duo in terms of pure, unstoppable playoff scoring. Right. Like it it gets a little tricky, but I, I think I think we're splitting hairs because Devin Booker is ascending, in my opinion, to like a pretty ridiculous level. His thing about uh, I thought was so interesting about elevating uh, going to the right and uh, specifically what stood out to me about that was the vast majority of right-handed shooters are actually more comfortable shooting pull-up jump shots going to their left. The main reason why is because your body's already canted that way, which makes the most sense. But I also am a shooter that is more comfortable going to my right-hand side. And one of the main reasons why is I really enjoy – the footwork of it in the way that like when you're going to your right, it it's a more conducive footwork to exploding off the ground. And cause you're planting that left, right and elevating almost like you're going up for a dunk. And then you can actually square up in midair by kind of kicking that right foot around a little bit. And so for me personally, whenever I need to create a jump shot in any sort of like late game situation, I'm always looking to do some sort of step back going to my right hand side. Right. Um, I always thought that I thought that specifically was super interesting because with Devin Booker right now, I get the same feeling when I'm watching him, like when he's coming off of a screen or in some sort of ISO and he gets a, a little bit of a, if he gets enough separation to get into his one, two, like to get into his footwork, I just think it's going in. Like it, he's on a, a truly un, unprecedented pull up jump shooting run it's pretty incredible and then the playmaking to go with it there's a legitimate case to make that he's better than Kevin Durant right now like he I'm not trying to to poo-poo that duo so to speak I just would put Steph and Katie and Kobe and Shaq over him yeah and I think that that's totally uncontroversial and if we are going to promote one last duo to this conversation Logan if we're going to the way throwback it's not going to be Wilt and Paul I think it would have West West and Elgin Mm. Baylor yeah I mean they combined for 70 points per game in 1962 in the regular season and the playoffs when those guys were simultaneously 
at their peaks. Basically, I mean, Jerry got a little better after that, but Elgin was still fully healthy. That was a, a pretty unstoppable duo. But we are really nitpicking either way here. So, Jason, you talk about the Suns at large. I mean, what have been your takeaways from seeing these two together out there? I'm not prepared to make any sort of big picture statement or move them around any contender list when they've played by far the easiest schedule in the NBA. Their opponents have won fewer than 45% of their games. The game winner against uh, the Knicks was just the second time this season that the Suns notched a win against a team that is 500 or better. Um, like, like the They have been by far the worst fourth quarter team in the NBA by net rating. And I think one of the big reasons for that is you're seeing teams will play normal basketball against the Suns for three quarters and get picked apart in their base coverages and, and play their normal offensive basketball on the other end. But consistently what you're seeing is what's happening at the end of these games is they're throwing the kitchen sink at the stars and their lesser offensive players are missing shots. And then on the other end of the floor, they have a lot of entry points. You can get downhill on Yusuf Nurkic going to the basket. You can pick on their smaller guards off the ball. You can do a lot in the slow down portions of the game to bother this team. Now, the question will be, when Bradley Beal comes back, does that swing the offensive, you know, off-ball talent piece to where you can't just outright blitz Kevin Durant, Devin Booker every single time they touch the ball? We'll see, you know, when Devin Booker's out there, will or excuse me, when all three of those guys are out there, are they going to still be able to defend as well as Frank Vogel has had them defending, which they haven't been a great defensive team by any stretch, but they've been better than I expected. And Frank Vogel has them really sharp in their rotations. And, and just in general, I, I think Frank Vogel is kind of the perfect coach for them in, in terms of they don't need his, uh, his offensive limitations don't matter with how good they are offensively. And he can just get them to run a good baseline scheme and, and to get guys to buy in. Right. So I'm not out on, the Suns or anything like that I just I have not seen anything from them this year that like is like oh see that that that's gonna be the thing that pushes them over the top in the postseason like I just haven't seen that and so like I'm I want to just reserve judgment on the Suns until they start racking up wins against good teams and or get everybody back and and start to play better at that at that point shout out a uh, coach you just mentioned uh, at the start of the episode Jason uh, I'll go back to Dennis Green you know, in terms of, you know, they are who we thought they were in terms of different things that we've seen from the Suns this year. I think you're right. It, you know, if if you're looking for something that's going to put them over the top, we haven't seen it yet because you talk about the adjustments that teams make in the fourth. I think that's the scary thing that may come back to bite Phoenix in the playoffs, right? We saw it last year when the other guys weren't pulling their weight, when KD and D-Book would go into these lulls taking pull-up long mid-range jump shots and you know, they'd lose leads, they'd blow games, and that hasn't fixed itself either. Uh, last, uh, in the playoffs, they 20, uh, they were 20th percentile in uh, shots at the rim. This season, they're 21st percentile. I still think that's the biggest aspect of this team is reliable, dynamic offense. You know what I mean? Because you're, we're not going to deny the talent that's here, the crazy pull-up jump shooters, the overwhelming offensive ability. It's going to be about this offense being dynamic and unstoppable. I do think you're right, though. When Brad Beal comes back, that's when we're finally going to be able to... Man, I'm waiting on it, dude. It is frustrating. I want to see this team at full strength. I'm so excited to see these guys play together. I've had people... Uh, one of my coworkers went to the game where Brad Beal was supposed to make his debut. He was like, oh, man, we're going to see the trio together. And then we got got... That's really going to determine uh, what this team looks like in the future. But the issues that got them in the playoffs still have have not been resolved. I think that's still the Suns' biggest issue is that offensive dynamism. I do think 
the shot making from the supporting cast is better than last year. And they did a good job of addressing that. And they've actually been the best three-point shooting team in the league, I think, by percentage in this streak that they're on. And there's no question that swapping out Okogi and Torrey Craig, Okogi's obviously still there, but he doesn't have to play as prominent of a role. They have more options. Even Chris Paul, who's just not a comfortable catch-and-shooter off ball, injecting Grayson Allen, Eric Gordon, even Yuta, right? Those dudes are flamethrowers. And so... If you think about that Nugget series where Book was just out of his mind and the defensive strategy became, all right, we're going to basically have Jokic hedge hard and we're going to get multiple bodies in his face and we're going to force Book to make these skip passes, which he actually managed to do. And that was when the playmaking leap was evident. And that's why I don't understand how people could have been concerned about that because Book has grown so much there and he already showed it in the playoffs last year. But he can make these awesome skip passes all he wants. If the dudes in the corner aren't knocking them down, then you're still doing the right thing defensively. So I think that, yes, teams will load up on him and KD and force other guys to beat them, as they should. But they're also better equipped in that sense. But when it comes down to it, nothing has changed in terms of my outlook about the defensive ceiling that this team can reach. Like, even in this stretch... They've been 22nd in defensive rating. I just don't see, as a matter of personnel, how they can be above average there. And if Beal is out there, then that makes things all the much more difficult. So, I think that this is what this team is going to be great at. I mean, they have Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. They have two of the best mid-range shot makers alive, two of the best just scorers, period. Two of the most versatile scorers. I mean, they're both eating up free throws right now. So even without pressuring the rim at an elite level, they're getting some of those free points. And Book is, I've said this before, just undeniably a top eight player alive right now. When you consider, I think he has an effective field goal percentage of 62 on pull-up jumpers this year, totally unconscious. And the level at which he is thinking the game right now, his manipulation of defenders with his eyes to move guys to open up specific passing angles, his composure against traps and hard hedges, and his ability to play make out of those situations, just how genuinely unselfish he is, how willing he is to facilitate. Like, that is an all-around offensive superstar. His handle has gotten so good. He loves that in and out so much. Like, it just feels like offensively there's nothing that he can't do right now other than maybe rise up and dunk on a guy like Anthony Edwards. But that was never the concern. And so, to me, as a overall basketball team, I'm still not really moved yet. I I am a believer in what they're capable of when they're at full strength. I just don't want to make a call on it until I see it. And and like that, that's really all there is to it. I think, I, I think that, to Carson's point, the – that's the one glaring flaw that's shown on the screen that I'm not sure there's a fix for, which is like they have to run drop with Nurkic and that's just an easy target at the end of games. And the, the, the simple, like if you're going to run, you know, I don't think Booker and Beal are easy targets, but they are guys where like, like, let's say they face the Lakers. You don't think LeBron's going to be attacking both of those guys in the post. You don't think LeBron's going to be attacking an Eric Gordon. I think, I think Eric Gordon's the clubhouse leader for fifth starter. What do you guys think? When they're, when they're healthy. I think so. I mean, point of attack defense, spot up shooting, close out attacking. I think that he offers the most complete, you know, if he decides that he's not going to take 20 shots and (laughs) 35 (laughs) times, that's the only downside. Oh God. Yeah. The injuries have been perfect for the way he wants to play here. (laughs) Yeah. Very true. He has just decided that he is Bradley Beal 
And I think that that's <laughs> always been his dream. Uh, yeah, I'm by no means out on the Suns. It's just when I looked at this preseason, it's like, all right, can they reach the effortless offensive ceiling that the Nuggets can? I still don't quite think so. And I don't think they can reach that defensive ceiling. So uh, there are just limitations here that are not going to be easily addressed. They did a phenomenal job with the resources that they had, and they have this unbelievable duo, but I think it's going to be tough for them to get to a place where I'm going into the postseason like, oh yeah, that team is is going to win the title. Well, one, one last really quick note before you move on. Shout out to Kevin Durant. One of the things I was talking about this offseason was like he's taking too many long twos and he's leaving shot value on the table. He's kind of upped his pull-up three-point shooting this year in terms of volume and percentage, and it's kind of uh, it's done a it's done a lot to just kind of make his overall shot value higher, and I and I think that was smart and I, I, a good adjustment on his part because like you can't all just be taking pull up twos all the time. Yeah, as Chet Holmgren once wisely said, fifty four <laughs> from Trey Ball is OD shooting hang pulls, and that's something that I think about a lot. And Katie has really embodied that this year. In the NBA, the game can change in an instant, but no matter how the action unfolds, you know DraftKings Sportsbook has your back. This week, new customers can score 150 instantly in bonus bets just for betting 5 bucks on basketball. Win or lose, you get an instant dub. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code NERDS. New customers can get 150 instantly in bonus bets for betting just $5 on basketball only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code NERDS. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problems with gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, licensee partner Golden Nugget Lake Charles, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash football terms for eligibility and Deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Okay, so going to the East here, another contender that struggled a little bit, not as much in terms of win-loss record, but just in terms of their caliber of play early. The Bucks have come on strong as well. They're now sitting at 13-5. and five. Jason, how encouraged are you by their turnaround here? So they're another team where, like, I have this theory. It's a working theory that I've kind of come up with this year which is like nobody just rips through and beats good teams one after the other. Not in the NBA. Not anymore. No one goes on an eight-game winning streak against all high-level playoff opponents. It just doesn't happen. Like it, really good teams will go five and three in stretches like that. You know what I mean? So generally speaking, my working theory is like when teams play like shit for an extended period of time, it's usually tougher schedule, guys getting hurt out of the lineup. You know, that kind of thing. Like the Warriors. Everyone's like off the Warriors bandwagon. They've played they've played the toughest schedule in the league by far. They've Draymond Green's barely played. But like uh, their core players, Clay Thompson and Andrew Wiggins, just not playing well, right? Like there's there are clear reasons why they've been struggling. And it's like what'll end up happening is they'll play some weak portion of their schedule. Now Draymond Green's back from his suspension and they'll rip off like seven wins in a row and everybody will be like, The Warriors are back. And it's like, <laughs> and, like yeah. and, and, and and like that's the thing is like when I look at this Bucks turnaround, and by the way, this is not this has nothing to do with the Bucks and their long term ceiling, but this has been their last 11 games. They played Indy, a good team in my opinion. They lost. They played Orlando, a good team in my opinion. They lost. They played Chicago, a bad team in my opinion. They won. 
Toronto, mediocre team, they won. Charlotte, bad team, they won. Dallas, good team, they won. There's a quality win for you. Played Washington, bad team, they won. Boston, great team, kind of got killed. Uh, the came, fake comeback situation there at the end of the game. Played Washington, bad team, they win. Played Portland, bad team, they win. Played Miami without Jimmy Butler, that's a mediocre team, and they won. So, like, I'm not saying that they're, you know – like that that this is a useless stretch of basketball. I'm just saying this is this isn't an example of them having figured everything out. In even in this eight and one stretch against a really weak schedule, still only 14th in defense. But there are some really encouraging things. They're rebounding way better than they did to start the year. That's encouraging. I think a big part of that is just just keeping their big guys closer to the rim. That's helped a lot. The pull-up three-point shot coming around for Dame, I think, is big. He's 41% on pull-up threes in his last eight games. In his last three games, he's eight for 17, which is 47%. That's a really good sign that the struggles early in the season were related to conditioning and rhythm, which we that was our theory, working theory at the time, right? Um, Giannis, 35% on non-restricted area shot attempts this year, which is up from 31% last year. 40% in the paint outside of the restricted area, which, again, those are really bad numbers, but for Giannis, they're good numbers. <laughs> so, like, I, yeah. I'd say that is is an, uh, uh, an upgrade. Really, the one thing I've thought about this team, which I thought before the season, is, yeah, I know Malik Beasley's been hitting shots, but you got to upgrade that two spot in some way, shape, or form. They they are in the exact same predicament the Lakers are. They absolutely have to hit on a midseason trade, and they desperately need a high-motor athlete. No, Marjan Bochamp is not the guy for the same reasons Cam Reddish is not the guy and the same reasons – that uh, you know, Max Christie's not the guy. Like you can't, you can't be like, oh, the 22-year-old who's fast is the guy who's going to save us. Like that's that just never is going to be the thing. And I think Beauchamp and Christie might even be younger than that. I'm not sure. But anyway, the point is, is like they're going to have to make some sort of midseason trade. But the I don't know if you guys have noticed, but the Dame Giannis pick and roll is starting to look more like what we expected it to look at the start of the season. They're finally starting to clear the side to simplify the reads and they're setting screens further away from the basket. Giannis is no longer popping like an idiot like he was early in the season. He's rolling hard to the rim. So like they're I'm a big believer in the Bucks and their long-term ceiling, but they're just like the Lakers. They have to hit on their midseason trade. Yeah, 100%. I, I do like what I've seen from them, and they did fix their biggest issue that we thought that Dame would address. I haven't seen the same lulls offensively. Like you said, I'd like to see this against better defenses, two better teams, but they're the number three half-court offense this season. That's a massive leap. They've been the number one most efficient team scoring uh, out of pick and roll. Uh, they were just slightly better than league average last season. Like, this should be one of the best teams in all of basketball at closing games out. Like you guys mentioned, you know, Giannis and Dame are attempting nearly 20 free throws a night. Like, when you're coming down late in games, like getting downhill, drawing fouls, creating offense, that's where this team is lacked. And again, this is without Chris Middleton, too. I mean, that opens up another dynamic uh, when he's fully healthy, you know. Uh, you mentioned that Portland game. They erase a 26-point deficit against them. I thought that was really impressive. Again, it's against Portland, but... Uh, for Milwaukee, been playing some decent basketball. Can we shout them out for a second? I guess. Shout out. Portland. <laughs> <laughs> um, shout out Portland. Done. Okay, move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I am still concerned about my uh, Milwaukee's perimeter defense. I think that's their biggest issue. You talk about twenty-two-year-olds who can't save them. I was going to give a shout out to Andre Jackson. I guess we'll move past that. I mean, Clap. he was he was an elite <laughs> defender at UConn. I mean, I don't know. Give him. More burn. I'd like to see him get some runway. I guess when Malik's shooting the ball like this, you can't worry about it. But that, to me, is still Milwaukee's biggest flaw is just guys getting into the lane. Like, it just creates so much easy offense for everybody else. If it's a kick out to the corner, if it's 
another kick. You know, them getting into the lane just creates offense for this and for for the opposing team. So that's what Milwaukee needs to clean up again. Yeah, I think the guys on the perimeter are just small, and that is their biggest issue. I'd like to see Andre Jackson Jr. get some burn, considering he's a rookie. I don't think that he's the solution. I'd like to, like I said, I'd like to see him get some PT because he is a he's a lock. He's good in transition. He's a smart ball mover. Like he's a good connecting piece that I'd like to see get some play. But uh, yeah, I think it is going to hinge on the midseason move and whatever two or three that Milwaukee can acquire. One hundred percent. That is another team that absolutely in an ideal world, should be on the market for Alex Caruso. They just don't have any assets. I mean, they don't have a 2029 first rounder to dangle out there like the Lakers. I mean, they have shipped everything out. So I don't know what that package for a good point of attack defender looks like, but there's no question they have to address it with a move. And compared to Malik Beasley, I like Bochamp more, honestly. Like Malik has been a flamethrower as of late, but I just think he's more capable of defending and he can still knock down those shots. But yeah, you can't play him 28 minutes a game in a playoff series. Andre Jackson, I do like his tools defensively and athletically, and I think he's smart. Offensively, he's just not skilled enough to be a guy you play 20 minutes a game in a playoff series, and they need those guys. So I am Carter. I was about to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, seriously. I think we could work up a Photoshop of him in a bunch of <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see that a lot because now that I think about it, that could be something. Yeah, it is just brutal when these teams let guys go. Like uh, the Lakers with Caruso is obviously the epitome. But Did, you hear, address... did you hear Jovan yesterday say that uh, people inside the Lakers are still pissed off about that? Yeah, of <laughs> and course. And there's a lot of blame shifting. I want to be like, here's the problem. There's blame shifting because it's all the – the person at fault is the person who signs all your paychecks. That's why no one is actually willing to point the figure finger in the, yeah. dire the correct direction. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I don't know how you get over that as a front office, especially considering the value that he signed at. But when it comes to the Bucks, I do feel slightly encouraged, I guess, by this run. But I agree with Jason's point about the strength of schedule. And this offense is humming. But that was never my concern. Like, they're fourth in offensive rating now. This is an elite three-point shooting team. Of course, Dame's pull-up jumper was going to start falling. The one thing that has encouraged me is that his pick-and-roll synergy with Giannis has been better. I was really disappointed in that through the first handful of games. I just thought Giannis was setting really lackluster screens. I still don't think that he sets good screens, but he has been rolling harder. He's been making better decisions as a short roller. The one Dame pick and roll element that I still think they need to improve upon is when teams really sell out on Dame. If it's a trap, if it's a, a hard hedge, whenever two defenders are committed to him and he has to get the ball out, he hasn't been the most precise passer in those situations and they haven't been the most effective taking advantage of some of those four on threes. Like, interesting stat. When Dame shoots out of pick and roll, he scores with 86th percentile efficiency. When the defense commits to him, which means he's very likely going to facilitate, it's only 48th percentile pick and roll offense. So if they want to reach their true ceiling, I think they need to do a better job capitalizing on uh, the offensive attention he demands. And Dame certainly has a role in that as well. But when we're talking about Bucks' expectations, it was never, all right, can they rattle off wins against mediocre teams? The standard is Boston and the standard is Denver. And when I hold them up to that standard, I still think that point of attack defense is too much of an issue. They're still 21st in defensive rating on the year and you know, they've slightly improved. I think Dame's effort there has improved a bit, but it's nothing meaningful. It certainly doesn't move the needle. And when I look specifically at that Boston matchup, now that we have seen them head to head, it's interesting because it felt like 
a, a couple years ago or in recent years, Milwaukee had such physical advantages there because their front line was so big and so strong, which is still the case. But also then in the backcourt, you had Drew Holiday, one of the biggest, strongest point guards in the league. And now when I look at the perimeter personnel, the guards and the wings, I mean, the Celtics have such advantages. Derek White and Drew Holiday now, that is a big athletic backcourt. And then on the wings, you have Jalen and Jason. It just felt like they could sort of repeatedly target Milwaukee's perimeter personnel and win those matchups over and over again. And they're just playing better basketball right now. We, I guess, won't really know if they've solved their issues until it comes down to the last four minutes of a playoff game and Jason Tatum has to make good decisions as a ball handler and a facilitator and all that. It's so hard with Boston because of that. It's like you can't really tell. Like, they could win 17 games in a row right now and I'd be like, "Eh, I don't know. Yeah, (laughs) like seriously. I do think at this point Milwaukee is flawed enough to where I would pick Boston over everybody in the East. I would still take Denver. And I do feel like they're a smarter team now that you have a guy like Drew in there, but I don't know. I do worry about some of those same issues, but that's just a damn good basketball team right now. So holding Milwaukee up to that standard, I still think they need to improve, and I'm worried about the assets they have to make a meaningful move, but I would absolutely pick them over everybody in the East other than Boston. And we did a show a couple weeks ago where we talked about if they were the most disappointing team in the league, and I still would have picked them over everybody other than Boston in the East. I'm disappointed because I thought they could win the title. I I mean, they were my pick to win the title. I thought they would every bit be the caliber of team that Denver is, and they're just not there right now. Is Chris Middleton ever going to get back to what he was in 2021? That is another key point. Thank you for bringing that up, Jason, because it was cracking me up when Logan was talking. He said, without Chris Middleton, I mean, he's out there. Well, I mean, (laughs) he's just not really doing much, man. To answer your question, Jason, I'm not optimistic. The one thing that encouraged me was the level that he found in that Heat series. It was a small sample size, uh, but he is just such a special contested shot maker still that his shot quality doesn't have to be very high for him to still be a very good offensive player. But he is just such a limited athlete at this point. And when is he going to be ready to play more than Mm -hmm. 20 minutes a game? How many times has he scored 20 points in a game this season? Take a guess, Carson. I mean, I want to say zero, maybe one. One. Is that your guess? Sure. I'll say one. It was zero. Oh, I had it. Yeah. (laughs) That feels right, dude. And he could be such a good tertiary shot maker. And we saw, dude, in a title run, he dropped 25 a night and he stepped up and he was that big time shot maker late in games. What do you guys think? Because that is the other primary concern here. It's point of attack defense and it's what Middleton is reasonable to expect at this point. I mean, I think it's, all within expect like what do you, what do you need for Middleton? I mean, do you need 18 a night? Like I still think Middleton is a tough enough bucket that it's going to be tough. It's always going to be ugly with Chris Middleton, man. It's never going to be beautiful, easy, you know, seamless basketball because of how he gets his buckets, but yeah, man. I mean, I, I still think Chris give him a full season. I I was encouraged. I was really encouraged by what we saw in the Miami series. Like I don't know. I, I don't think it's his game's not, you know, super heavily predicated on athleticism. Like, I think if you're expecting 20-plus, maybe you'll be disappointed. But 18 efficiently, I think, is doable playing off-ball both of these guys. And I think with what Damon Giannis can do offensively, I think that's enough. So I don't think he'll ever be what he was at his apex, you know, during the title run. But I think he can be enough to be a, a tertiary offensive option. I think it matters more that he can be a good 
athlete and defender and rebounder. And like, that's the scary thing is like, you're talking about perimeter personnel and it's like, it is arguably the least, the worst combination of size, length, and athleticism for a perimeter core in the NBA right now. Now, Giannis, when he's on the floor, makes up for so much of that, obviously. But like they are, they're small and they're slow, and and so that that's the concern. Is like people also forget that like Chris Middleton was the guy who took a lot of important defensive assignments for them in that 2021 playoff run, and was a very important point of attack defender. So like it, that to me is is another big swing factor, and that that that's kind of like they're Lakers East, man. They're Lakers East. Like if they're they make the right trade and they're healthy and they're in some big series against Boston. Like you're going to pick Boston, but you're like, man, like I'm scared of them. They could win the series. And that's kind of the way it is with the Lakers. You're picking Denver over LA in a Western conference finals rematch. That would be the smart bet. That'd be the bet that I would make. But like, if you were like, if it was game five and it was two, two and LeBron's got the ball and and it's a tie game, you're like, shit, they might pull this off. Like, like that's the kind of <laughs> yeah. thing that that's kind of where I'm at with, with both of those teams. Yeah, you cannot underestimate the ceiling that a Dame and Giannis-led team can reach, and Brooke Lopez is still so good. But mm -hmm. I'm with you, Jason. I really worry about the athletic deterioration of Middleton. Just, I mean, he's not average in any of those capacities at this point. And with all of the issues alongside him on that perimeter defense, it's going to be a lot to overcome. So we'll see if they can pull it off. They are trending in the right direction. And Chris looked a little spry last night against Miami, I thought, for whatever that's Yeah. Was. In terms of yeah. just the way he was moving. Yeah. I do really worry, though, about the expectation of him being healthy for a playoff run at all. Exactly. Like when a guy goes basically two years and he's on a minutes restriction the entire time or he's just not out there and he's in his mid-30s now, or I guess still his early 30s, but it's not great. Okay. Let's move on from the old to the young here because – this has been an unbelievable season for specifically the 2020 draft class, which at the time wasn't viewed as a super strong class. Like there were a lot of questions about Ant and LaMelo who felt like the primary candidates for that number one spot. Wiseman ends up going to, he had played four games of college relatively unproven. And what we have seen from the guard play has just been unbelievable. You have Ant Edwards, you have Tyrese Halliburton, you have Tyrese Maxey, you have, of course, LaMelo, you have Desmond Bain, all dudes who are just hooping this year. Logan, who do you view as the best guy from that class? It's such a tough question. I also want to say, I mean, that was just such a crapshoot of a draft considering the circumstances like that was always going to be tough to gauge uh with, with that draft process because i mean a lot of these guys slip like maxi slips halliburton slips dude i can't believe i'm saying this because of how high i've been on anthony edwards for so long i think i'm gonna say tyrese halliburton i i don't know like i think there's a gap in terms of like ant's athleticism and the defensive ceiling that i think ant can reach all of his tools together, like, I think one day he's going to be a really great playmaker because of the pressure that he puts on the rim. I think he's got scoring champ potential, but what Halliburton's doing right now, like, I don't know, it, it seems like Halliburton's going to be one of the best offensive players in basketball for the next decade, right? Like, it, it's just easy. He just, he's such a genius. I was so elated on draft day when Halliburton fell to the Kings. It was a match made in heaven to me, because in the pre-draft process, you saw it, it was... The genius passing, man, and 
He is. He's one of the best passers that I've seen, one of the most creative passers that I've seen. The one question mark I had always was, is that janky-ass catapult jump shot going to go in? And it does. Like, I don't know, with how wide his base was, with how he moved, it's like, oh, you know, his jumper's a little slow, it's janky. Like, I don't know if it's going to translate or guy's going to be able to block it because of how long it takes him to get up. It's reliable. Like, this year, I just never saw 25-point-per-game scoring out of Halliburton. He's 26-12-4 on 67% true shooting right now. He's shooting 55% on pull-ups, 53% on pull-up threes. Like, I think there is an MVP ceiling with Anthony Edwards that is going to be realized, but what Halliburton's doing this year is MVP caliber, and I just don't see how it's, you know, what's going to be different. How do you stop this? It's not, you know, his game isn't super predicated on athleticism. It's genius playmaking. It's great shooting. You know, I don't see how, you know, Halliburton's going to regress or take a step back from what we've seen this season. And it's tough because Maxie and LaMelo are top-notch too. But, yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to go Halliburton right now, man. So, I have – this is a crazy guard draft. Because we forgot Desmond Bain in there too. And then these are lesser guys, but these are other guards that I like. Emmanuel Quickly is really good in my opinion. Um Cole Anthony has won me over this year. I know it mm-hmm. sounds crazy, but like no, he's got a it, it doesn't. Camden oh yeah, those right are my guys. Yeah, uh, Trey Jones is a guy I like mm-hmm. out of that draft, and then Isaiah Joe is another guy that I like out of that draft. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. like uh, Carson, can you think off the top of your head any specific draft that was more loaded at the guard position? I mean, we'll get back to you. Yeah, I'll get, <laughs> I'll like get back to you. Looking, I'll read my. I'm going to read my top five. I ranked them. I'm going to read my top five, and then I want you to tell me what you think is the best guard draft outside of that. So I put put Desmond Bain at five. I I think he's awesome, but he's more or less reached his ceiling. I I think in terms of athleticism and his lack of length, I think he can't get too much better than he is right now. Um, Although he's shown some flashes of higher-level pull-up shooting in the last couple years, and his playmaking is getting better. I put LaMelo Ball at four. I actually think his ceiling is closer to Ants than maybe any of the guys, but... Two two specific things put me off with Lamella. Uh, One, he's really struggling to bridge the gap between like his incredible highlight ability and like actual steady, like good shot selection, making the right reads, like that kind of thing. Like that to me is something where he's a little bit of a loose cannon, and I'm not sure if he can ever really get over that. And then it's the health. Like he's already missed 85 games in his NBA career, and he's about to miss a bunch more. I'm also a little freaked out because his brother had all sorts of issues. So like I that kind of holds Lamelo down for me. Tyrese Maxey, I have at three. For him, it's just being undersized and a really poor defensive player that kind of holds him back, although he is trying. But he's made huge leaps this year as a playmaker and as an isolation scorer and uh, a lot of specific things that look great. I give a slight edge to Ant over Tyrese Halliburton. And here's why. Tyrese, to me, is like a steady version of LaMelo Ball. Like, he's got – he's got – he's actually a more accurate shooter. But more importantly, like, he just makes really good decisions. He doesn't make a lot of mistakes, which is very different than the the LaMelo process. The reason why I lean Ant, I think he's by far the best and most versatile athlete in the group. 
I think he's by far the best defender, even if his focus drifts sometimes. And he's got like legitimate best perimeter defender in the league type of potential in the big picture if he wants to. And I think he'll be LeBron-esque in the sense that like, I don't think he'll ever be regarded as the league's best defender or even in that conversation, but you'll be in some big playoff series and it's like, oh shit, Ant's doing this now. And he shut that off. Okay. Like, like I think you're going to see a lot of stuff like that in his late twenties, early thirties. And just in general, I think his offensive frame gives him a lot more playoff versatility offensively in terms of like when things really denigrate down to a rock fight and the pull-up jumpers aren't falling and, you know, they're completely ignoring Bruce Brown off the ball or something like that. Like, who knows what the deal is? Like, I think Ant's physical imposition on the game gives him just a little bit higher ceiling as a two-way player in the playoffs than Tyrese Halliburton can reach. But to be clear, we are splitting hairs on all five of those guys. <laughs> like, all five of those guys are awesome. And, like, I-, I think there's probably a little bit of a break between the top four and Bane. But, like, between those top four guys, like, all – like, Tyrese Maxey's playing like a star this year. Like, I, I don't want to undersell that at all. But I lean slightly towards Ant because of those athleticism advantages. So, I think I agree with your five through three – Jason, I love Bane, but it's tough to see how he gets a lot better. Although, to be fair, I have kind of felt that about him year in, year out, and he has continued to improve, but it's just tough when you don't see that athletic ceiling, that real playmaking ceiling, but he's just damn good right now. LaMelo has had an awesome season, but I agree with you. I mean, he's a better shooter even than the numbers indicate because his shot quality is so tough, and he's improved as a finisher this year. I do wonder what he looks like in a more structured, serious basketball situation. And if that maybe does help address some of the uh, recklessness that you see from him at times. But I still think he has to be at four because the top three are just so great. I mean, I don't know who you would rather have as a number two option. Just the brilliant level of shot maker that Tyrese Maxey is. I mean, there's a couple guys, right? I would rather have Kevin Durant. But, like, I've been such a... Huge fan of Maxi for so long, and he has been incredible. Quick stat to me, for you, though, Tyrese Maxi yeah. catch and shoot jump shot's been worth one point four nine points per shot this year. Disgusting! I almost just threw up when you said that, but <laughs> it's right, dude. I mean, he does everything right. Incredible spot up, incredible in transition, lethal pick and roll score, good isolation score, playmaking well this year. To me, he's clearly a top thirty player in the NBA right now, maybe top twenty five. But then when we are getting to the Halley and Ant tier, we're talking about generational. We're talking about top 15 players right now. We're talking about dudes who I think are perennial MVP candidates. And I wasn't that high on Halley before this year. I have been so, so blown away about what we've seen from him. Just completely unrivaled production and efficiency. Throughout NBA history, 26 and 12 on 67% true shooting. Like, come on. And he's doing it while leading by far the number one offense in the NBA without another close to star talent alongside him. And... It's interesting when we compare him to Ant because I definitely think Halley is playing better basketball right now. I do think there are some different dynamics when you talk about a playoff series, but to me, it's not so much about the offensive side of the ball. Now, I think Ant is a guy who is always going to get better in a playoff scenario because of how dominant he is physically. And I mean, we've seen that every time that he's been there, he's taken his level up and Ant is just continuing to get better too. I mean, he has turned into an elite mid-range shooter when previously that was a dynamic that was completely missing from his game. So his scoring versatility has improved and he has that unstoppable physical element. He is getting better as a playmaker. Ant to me is a guy who will always get better in the playoffs. 
I just don't think Hallie actually gets worse because when you talk about those situations, all right, well, what if a defense does completely ignore Bruce Brown? Hallie might be the single best player in the NBA right now at dealing with traps. He is so composed in those situations. He just literally always makes the right read. And that is such an asset when you combine it with scoring touch that you cannot overstate how great it is. Like, this is not Trey Young where Trey is going to have these brutal shooting nights. Howie's a top two shooter in the NBA, and I honestly don't think you can argue otherwise. He's shooting 46% from deep right now on crazy high volume. He's shooting 43% on pull-up threes. Like, after Steph Curry, give me Howie over anybody else. He can pull from such depth. And then when you talk about the touch shot making, he's going to be 55% from floater range. He just constantly has defenses in a bind. And I don't know if there's an athlete you can put on him that takes away that level of skilled shot making. And I don't know if there's a defensive scheme that can deal with just how brilliantly he is going to dissect whatever you throw at him as a playmaker. So, I mean, this is a guy who is a generational offensive talent, truly. But you can pick on him defensively, and that is going to happen in high-stakes scenarios. And Ant is a guy who is going to defend a lot better in the playoffs too because you absolutely see the flashes in the regular season. There are times where his effort waxes and wanes, but when he's dialed in, he has all the special athletic traits and we've seen those ceilings from him. So it is very close for a playoff series this year because you cannot overstate the value of, hey, I'm going to make this team great offensively. Just give me good spot-up shooters, good enough athletes. I'm going to create great shots every time down the floor. And as awesome as he is, can't quite do that, but I think... It's a classic floor raiser versus ceiling raiser dynamic. I think Hallie is a better floor raiser. Give him a supporting cast with just shooters and he is going to make that a great offense. But if you have good talent alongside the guy, then give me the guy with the elite two-way ceiling, the unstoppable physical force who's good enough as a playmaker. That's Ant. Long-term, I still want Ant because I do think that he has more room to grow. But it's a much closer conversation than I really ever would have thought. It's definitely super close. I, I like your floor raiser comp because like he uh he pretty much revitalized Obi Toppin's career. Uh just because he just because he hits him on every freaking cut to yeah. the basket that he Obi's makes. not like, good. Obi's he, not good at all. He's, he's athletic. He hits him on he hits him on every cut to the rim and he hits him on every leak out. And like just just that right there has made Obi Toppin into like a useful four uh in that unit. I uh I I I view him Jokic-esque in terms of his ability to kind of decipher coverages and, and things along those lines. Again, my my I agree with you that it's super, super close. I guess the difference between us and the reason why I have him flipped is like I'm a big believer that like playoff series at the highest level are like the definition of everything going wrong. Like everything stops working. Your this stops working. Your that stops working. They take this away. They take that away. And they literally turn into these ugly ass fist fights that that and and I just I'm always going to lean on the bigger stronger athlete in a situation like that. And for the record, that's one of the reasons why I love Jokic. Is like Jokic is both the free-flowing maestro and the dude who like if you were playing pool basketball with him and there's like three guys like pulling on his shoulders and stuff, he's still just going up over everybody and dunking it. You know, like he can do that too. And I think that's what makes him the best player in the league. But to me, that's kind of the the specific thing I look at when I give a slight edge to Ant. Yep, I agree. And I think that, again, it comes down to also trying to pinpoint the opposing player and team's biggest weakness. And 
you're going to attack Howie defensively. You can't do that with Ant. But Howie's versatility offensively, you mentioned transition. I mean, I think he's the best transition conductor in the NBA today. I think he's the best hit-ahead passer in the NBA today. Awesome stuff for Obi, like legitimately. He's more productive there than he could be anywhere else. And in the half court, I mean, he scores with 95th percentile efficiency out of pick and roll, 92nd out of isolation, 80th spot up. Doesn't play off ball a lot, but he's such a great shooter there. I mean, he is a true offensive maestro. And that's just what I want to emphasize because... I see him lumped more into those maxi conversations at times. I honestly think it it depends. Some people would put him in those ant conversations, but to me, that's where he belongs. Like this is truly one of the league's superstars right now and for the foreseeable future. But I think, yeah, I think there's a gap between Tyrese, Maxi, and Halliburton. I I agree with you there. I just think the value to team offense, you, you cannot overstate. And also... I think Maxi is a benefit, uh, a beneficiary of playing alongside Embiid. He would be great anywhere, but that's a good situation when you have a guy who demands that much attention and can be your offensive number one. But Holly and Embiid, Holly and Embiid would probably be the favorite, right? Like you'd be, if not the favorite, yeah. you'd put them in that tier with with Boston, Milwaukee, and, and Denver. That would break the NBA. I mean, that yeah. would just be disgusting. But. When we're talking about these great offensive players, you were speaking my language there with the Jokic talk. And there's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for or the perfect table. Hey, where are you coming? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. You fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. A couple months back, I think it was, you went on Jenkins and Jones, friend of ours at The Volume, and you said that you felt that Jokic, at this point, was a more unstoppable half-court player offensively than Steph and LeBron, I believe, were the two names that you threw out. And they sort of winced at that. But you know me, I'm not going to wince at that, Jason. I'm going <laughs> to eat that right up. So I thought we could have that conversation and take it even beyond you know, comparing him to his other great peers. 
Do you think he's the most unstoppable half-court player ever offensively? Yes, and my reasoning is pretty simple. I've rooted against all the guys that – rooted for and against all the guys that I, I would include on that tier. And I've rooted against Steph in a playoff series as someone who was rooting for LeBron, and I could just plainly state that I felt more helpless as a fan – trying to to figure out ways that you could stop Nikola Jokic than I felt with Steph. And I want to be clear, that's not a shot at Steph in any way, shape, or form. This is just acknowledging Jokic for what he's doing. The uh, I would say on when I factor in both sides of the floor, I still think there's a gap between Jokic and LeBron from 2016 to 2020 in terms of like he was – 96, 97% of what Jokic was offensively while also being the most impactful athlete on the floor in transition and on the defensive end of the floor. And I think that kind of gave him an edge. But like, um, like specifically with Jokic, this thing where like there's like one dude in the league who's big enough to withstand his drop step and that's and that's Joel Embiid, which it was which would be so interesting about potentially seeing those two ever play in a playoff series, but I don't think it'll ever happen, or at least not anytime soon, because Embiid is such a limited playoff player. But like at least on the offensive end of the floor. But like he's like he's one of those guys that's so transcendently big that when we watch other guys that we consider to be big NBA players just he rips through them like tissue paper it's the craziest thing and like the it, it's a simple combination of he is constantly operating with a physical mismatch combined with unbelievable touch to the point where like if he gets to anywhere within 15 feet of the rim there's damn near a 75% chance that it's going in and there's no defensive coverage you could throw at him that he wouldn't pick apart with the right play and when you put those three pieces together it just becomes overwhelming. Because the one thing with Steph is like, he's got the shot value piece, he's got the playmaking piece, he's got all of those things, but he's operating at a physical disadvantage in almost every single situation. He's just so incredibly crafty, he can deal with all those situations. I do think Steph is deceptively quick, and I think he he's kind of Luca-esque in his ability to weaponize angles and fakes to get by people. And, and, and so I, I don't want to sit here and act like he's not a great athlete. Of course he is. But like Jokic is Steph operating with a physical advantage in every single situation. That's basically the way I look at him. Yeah. And I think that uh, another advantage too that Jokic has distinctly is just how much he amplifies all of his teammates. All three of these guys, I want to be clear too, Steph, LeBron, Jokic, I think have amplified their teammates maybe more than anybody else in NBA history. Shout out Magic Johnson, too, because when we're talking about the pantheon of great passers, too, I think it's Jokic, LeBron, Magic. But I also think it's the versatility, man. Like, you talk about the physical advantage that Jokic has on ball, Jason, down on the low block against smaller guys. Jokic has that advantage, you know, as a screen setter. And in terms of DHOs, like, that's another way that he maximizes his guys. The talent around him, like... He sets one screen, you're screwed, because then he's just going to throw a little pocket pass. Boom, it's a floater. It's, Yeah, I think Jokic is. He is probably number one for me. It's tough because LeBron is the greatest rim pressure ever, the greatest defensive collapser ever, but you know, I, t I think Jokic is a better tough shot maker. I think he abuses mismatches more against smaller defenders. And yeah, like I said, I think the biggest thing is that Jokic just amplifies his teammates more maybe than anybody else in NBA history. Yeah, I think he and LeBron are both pretty much peak mismatch abusers, as you would expect. I mean, they have these overwhelming physical advantages. It's hilarious when we talk about this question specifically in the context of the half court because the Nuggets are currently averaging more points per possession in the half court than in transition, which is like 
incomprehensible and they probably won't do that for the whole season but pretty ridiculous number for right now but i mean you guys articulated all of my key points here it is being the strongest dude in the league close to the biggest dude in the league while also being the best touch shot maker that we've ever seen i mean when you can just hit that paint and you are able to hit those hooks with layup efficiency out of pick and roll those floaters with layup efficiency and then if they dig you make the right read every time if they give you a hard double you make the right read every single time that is truly, truly unstoppable. And that is the advantage over Steph, who is operating from the perimeter, who is susceptible to more shot variance there. I think that there's an interesting debate to be had between the value that you can have away from the ball, enhancing your teammates without having to dominate, right? When we talk about the ceiling raising potential that that has. Like Steph draws two defenders away from the ball. And so that empowers his teammates to work with an advantage and they should get an open shot out of that. But he's still reliant on them making the right decisions because the outcome isn't literally in his hands. And then the physical imposition that you have as that dominant overwhelming force who when it comes down to it, it is literally just, I get to that paint and then you either double me and I hit somebody for a wide open look or I'm going to score on you in a one-on-one -on -one situation and which of those is more valuable. But I don't know if anybody has ever blended them more perfectly than Jokic because I do think he is more versatile even than a LeBron James, right? LeBron is going to dominate the ball when we're talking about prime LeBron. Of course, he can abuse those mismatches out of the post, but overwhelmingly he's going to run a whole lot of pick and roll and then it's probably going to be a kick out to a shooter or a good look for him around the rim and that's great great offense but if you do manage to cut off a LeBron drive he's not that great an intermediate shot maker I just think there's even more dimensions to what Jokic does when you're talking about the unstoppable post offense but then how great he is out of pick and roll both as a scorer and a playmaker as the roller and then at times even as the ball handler the fact that you can run Iverson cuts for this guy the fact that you can set down screens for him and he's this awesome shooter the fact that he's just a great spot up shooter period like I've just never seen a guy this complete offensively and uh, the passing versatility, too, because of how dominant he is from everywhere on the floor. Like, I don't know if anybody has ever been quite at that level of, all right, it's a post-up. Well, I'm totally comfortable throwing the lob up to Aaron Gordon, just as comfortable as I am making the bounce pass to him, just as comfortable as I am hitting this skip pass to this shooter, just as comfortable as I am hitting the kick out to the nearest guy. It's just like to have every single option on the floor be a great one. Every time he touches the ball, he has literally just optimized offense like his complete control of the game from everywhere to me is unrivaled and the way that that really uh, embodies itself is in the efficiency because he has every single option at all times he never really has to take a, a bad shot and by his standards it's really tough to even find a tough shot but if you look at peak mj peak lebron efficiency even those guys are like four percent true shooting better than league average well that's over the course of their careers Jokic these last three plus years is over nine percent true shooting better while he's scoring at this unbelievable volume he has been the best scorer alive for a few years in my opinion because of how well his game translates to the playoff stage where he's been dropping 30 a night on elite efficiency the only guy who can match his volume is Luka and Jokic is doing it much more efficiently if you look at this stretch since Jamal got hurt and take out that one game he got ejected against the Pistons Jokic is averaging 32 15 and 10 efficiently and that's a stretch where his three ball is off like that's a down shooting stretch so I think that you put it in a great way 
Jason. I don't know if anybody in the half court has ever made defenses so thoroughly helpless. And the team impact now we're looking at is unrivaled as well. Like if you look at on-off stuff, I mean, this is on pace to be the second straight year where Denver's offense is 19 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. That's a better number than LeBron has ever had. That's a better number than Steph has ever had. Not to say that's a perfect metric, but it certainly matches up with what you feel. He just completely has defenses helpless for the entirety of the game in the half court in a way that, I mean, even MJ, right? He would miss playmaking opportunities. Very good, but he would miss those opportunities. Magic, great score, underrated score. Wasn't as overwhelmingly dominant there as Jokic is. When I look at all those other tier one guys, I think he's the most infallible. LeBron just never had a non-restricted area go-to move that he could go to that was like comfortably over a point per possession. And he was so dominant in every other way offensively that it was still incredibly impactful. But like that to me is like the one little bit of difference that makes him 96% the offensive player that Jokic was is the fact that he just has the ability to, oh, in the event that you build a wall and keep me away from the rim and you somehow have great athletes gapping off of all the off-ball threats and you're going to force me to take this tough shot, like I can get, you know, 1.2 points per shot on it. Like this is crazy. He last year broke the, the NBA basically by shooting in the mid 60s on floaters and hooks uh, throughout the entire season. He's shooting 75% this year on floaters. Can you believe that? It's absolutely unbelievable. The one thing I'll say, Carson, uh, we talked a lot about this before the postseason last year, and Nuggets fans were quick to remind me that a lot of it had to do with his wrist. Uh, but um, I shouldn't say last year it was the year before last. It was the, the Austin Rivers, Faku, Compazzo year. But he has been a little up and down as a perimeter player, a perimeter shooter. Like, uh, if you go back four years, or uh, he was, like, pretty bad, and then he was pretty good, and then he was pretty bad, and then he was pretty good, and then this year he's been missing his perimeter jump shot again. I do think in order for him to be as inevitable, you know, to, to quote Thanos, to be – that as inevitable as he was last year in the postseason, he's going to need to be hitting the mid-40s in his three-point shot like he did at, uh, during that playoff run. I agree with you. That is actually a great thing to bring up because that has been the one swing factor with Jokic. Overwhelmingly, though, in the playoffs, I mean, he's been amazing. Like, he did have that one run, but he's 41% from deep in the playoffs. This last run was unstoppable. So, like, that is the one thing. If you can leave him from three and he's not going to make you pay for it consistently – then that is when he is no longer a perfect offensive player. LeBron. I mean, it's the same difference maker when we're talking about direct physical imposition. Yeah, to it's me. the Ant, Ant versus Halliburton. Mm -hmm. Same same argument. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Okay. I love that Jokic talk, but before we get out of here let's just give some quick love to somebody who maybe is going under the radar a bit right now. If it's a player or it's a team while we have you here, Jason, who is somebody in that category? Who you think's balling who deserves more credit right now? I have two guys that I want to quick shout out. Um, first Aaron Fox, he's been kicking everyone's ass this year. <laughs> and like, I don't feel like he's getting the recognition for that. Like I wouldn't say De'Aaron Fox has been at this level long enough for me to consider him in the superstar tier, but he has been playing like a superstar in this first fourth of the season. The second guy I want to shout out is Carl Anthony Towns. I thought he looked like the clearest candidate to get traded from Minnesota before the season. And for obvious reasons, 
And honestly, like it's, it's everything he's been doing on the defensive end of the floor. He's been a very good low man for them, cleaning up messes around the rim and help. And also as a defensive rebounder. And that has gone a long way towards making him a, uh, uh, just let's just say he's not hurting them on the defensive end as much as he has in years past. And when you combine that with him just playing a really controlled offensive game as a really nice compliment to Ant, he's one of the few guys in the league that like every single post touch he's drawing a double team, which I which I think is I shouldn't say every single, but the vast majority of his post touches he's drawing double teams, which is going a long way towards getting the defense in rotation and allowing them to play out of that. Like if he continues to play at this level, it makes no sense to trade him, which I think is a really interesting kind of counter to where we were before the season. So those are the two guys that I think in the star tier that are like playing a lot better than they're getting credit for right now. Yeah, I think those are good picks too. I want to give a shout out to, uh, uh, to Bam Adebayo, man. I just think he kind of gets criminally like lost in, I don't know, lost in the shuffle, man. We always talk about the great defenders in the league. We, you know, we always throw out Giannis, you know, people shout out triple J. We get Anthony Davis, right? I, I, Bam for my money is probably number Dre too. Bam's top three to me. It's it's tough, man. There's so many good defenders. But when you're talking about like complete packages in terms of rim protection, in terms of isolation, nobody over the last five years has defended more isolations at a better clip than Bam Adebayo. For my money is still uh, one of the handful of the best isolation defenders on the planet. Probably the best. Uh, opposing ball handlers are scoring just 0.77 points per possession versus Bam and drop. Uh, he's holding opponents to 52.9% at the rim. That's a career best mark for Bam. Uh, opponents attempt 6.2% fewer shots at the rim with Bam on the floor. And he's been the number one uh, best uh, isolation defender this season as well. I just think that uh, we give so much love to these great dominant rim protectors, but when you're talking about complete defensive impact of switching on the perimeter guys and on the interior, I think it's Bam and I think it's Dre. And Bam just never gets the love that I think he deserves. And neither do the Heat, man. I just feel like the Heat just do this every year where you just kind of forget about them. And then the other guy I want to give a shout-out to is two Knicks. A uh, shout-out to Emmanuel quickly, Jason. You're just like... Uh... <laughs> trying to fire me up, man. Quickly's my guy. He he might. I, I've said this before, and Carson always laughs at me, dude. Quickly might be my favorite player in the NBA. Um, I want to give a shout out to Jalen Brunson and R.J. Barrett. Uh, Brunson is as steady as they come at point guard, and again, just doesn't get the love he deserves. I think because the Knicks have Julius Randle on their team, and he drags them down. Um, and then R.J.'s just having a career year. Defense, shooting off ball, playing smart basketball. I'd like for him to be a little more efficient inside the arc, but. Uh, I have had my doubts seriously about RJ as a as a piece, and this is his, I think, his best season by far of his young career. Great choices all around. The only thing that concerns me with RJ is uh, what if we're seeing an outlier three-point yeah. shooting stretch, mm -hmm. and that isn't a sustained leap because, I mean, that's been huge for him. But, yeah, I mean, just a good two-way basketball player when he is knocking down his shots like that. Bam is a great choice, and you focus on the defense, which is always there, but offensively. Dude, did you see the, the turnarounds last game, him? man? 46% huh? on pull-up jumpers Dude, this year. Yeah. The, the footwork in the turnarounds, I was just mm -hmm. so surprised how balanced and even Bam looked rising up because he can fade away and throw himself off. I don't know. His footwork looked really good last night against, uh, against Milwaukee. Can I complain about Bam for just a second, though? <laughs> it's – when is he going to get to the point where he has better touch around the rim? That's the part that kills me. The, the, the every, all the Jokic shots that we're talking about, the really short range, like push shots, hook shots, floaters, uh, 
more dynamic finishes around the rim. That was a huge problem for the Heat in the playoffs last year, and because he he gets a lot of opportunities there, and I just I just wish he could like that's what's crazy is you're seeing kind of like his best pull up shooting season, but his touch still is just not there, and I I don't know when that's going to happen. And, and it's frustrating too, right? Because this is it, it, a lot of these stretches where Bam is really good offensively come without Jimmy, where he's eating as a mid range jump shooter. They're running him in DHOs like. He'll look like a completely different offensive player. It's frustrating. It's like the Anthony Davis thing, man, where you can have a couple of good games. And then, like you mentioned, in the playoffs, it'll just kill you. Because that's what will take Miami up to another level, right? With a healthy hero, with a healthy butler. If Bam could reliably give you 23-6 and a night efficiently, like it's just a – it would legitimately take Miami's offense up another notch. Yeah, but I think that's exactly the right complaint, Jason, and that is the complaint that will inevitably arise with Bam come playoff time again if they make a deep run and honestly can overshadow his defensive contributions because people get so frustrated by it. He was 39% from that 3-10 to foot range in last year's playoffs. Really, really cost them in one of those Denver games. I think, I can't remember which one it was exactly, Uh, but that whole series he was rough. And then... This year, he's only 42% from that range. Just not good enough. But he is shooting well for mid-range. He's being more aggressive, which can also be an issue for him. So he's playing very well. But De'Aaron Fox was who I had written down, especially now that they're coming off of back-to-back wins against the T-Wolves in that very strange game against the Warriors that they stole. But the dude's dropping nearly 30 a night. And an elite intermediate shot maker, 55% in the paint, but outside the restricted area, 46% for mid-range, while being one of the quickest, if not the quickest players in the NBA today, and having a career three-point shooting season. 36% from deep on eight and a half attempts per game. We've never seen him uh, shoot from deep at that volume. And so he just continues to get better. And also Cat does deserve credit because I was in the exact same boat as you, Jason. And after a few games this season, I thought offensively it's just not a good situation for him playing alongside another big like Gobert he's in that role where a lot of times he's a spot-up guy which he's very good at and he just got off to an ugly start to the season but then his drives can be rough because he's settling for a lot of those tough physical runners he can't get all the way downhill and if he does then Gobert's defender can just send help and maybe he struggles as a playmaker there and I still think it's a bit congested for him offensively you're not getting the best offensive version of Cat because of playing with Gobert and you know the turnover numbers are a little bit higher because sometimes those post-ups he can struggle to really break down doubles with his playmaking but he's playing much better offensively the shooting stuff has come back to where you expected to be with him and then defensively I would go as far as to say he's been good like I think having another big having that kind of size and length on the interior alongside Gobert a guy who can really defend in the post that's where he shines most because he's strong he's been like a real positive impact guy super important to what Minnesota's doing and I thought maybe you have to move off of him for a big wing who is a more seamless fit offensively, but I do not feel that way right now. I think all of what Minnesota is doing is so, so impressive. And I mean, we've do you look at them about... as a top tier contender the way I do or no? Yeah. I mean, you had them six. I would probably have them even higher. Honestly, I think to me, they might be four right now, which is tough. Cause I don't want to just keep on changing whoever I view as the second best team out West. Cause it's like, <laughs> this is what I said last show. You could tell me the Lakers made the Western conference finals. Wouldn't be surprised. The Warriors wouldn't be surprised. Timberwolves wouldn't be surprised at all. Thunder wouldn't be surprised. Like there's so many teams in that sort of range, but 
I mean, their defensive formula is so reliable. They're a really good matchup for the Nuggets defensively. I don't know if they quite have the offensive firepower. And that's really the one concern is, can they be an elite offensive team? I'm not sure. But having a player the caliber of Ant with solid supporting pieces offensively, I think they'll be pretty good there. And then defensively, I mean, if Ant's dialed in, they are elite on the perimeter. They are elite on the interior. They are big. They are physical. They are athletic. I mean, that's just going to be an ugly, ugly out for anybody. Yeah. So I think they have to be in those conversations. But Jason, it has been an absolute delight to have you here, man. So great to get to talk basketball with you. One of... I think both of our favorite people to listen to, but even more so to have on the show. So appreciate your insight as always. Any last words before we sign off here? I'm just looking forward to having you guys on my show next week. So we can make that a thing. Yes. Cannot wait. Everybody, of course, go check out Hoops tonight. Same deal as we have over here at Nerd Sesh. If you used to see Jason in your volume feed and then you wonder where he went he has his own youtube page now so look up hoops tonight really really awesome basically daily basketball content and if you want more of our stuff you can follow us across social tiktok and instagram at nerd sesh twitter at nerd underscore sesh you can listen to the podcast across audio platforms and like i said check us out on the nerd sesh youtube page plus if you want some merch we've got the flags behind us we've got hats we've got shirts we've got hoodies all of that at the volume.com so shout out again to jason awesome to have you on and thank you to all of you guys for listening and with that i have been carson brever i have been logan camden and this was nerd sesh With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.